These are the chronicles of the journey we take together. The journey of Steamheart, and one we invite you to take with us through Through the the wind wind door. So we start with Raven, but the rest of chapter 10 gives us a whole bunch of interaction of different personalities, allowing us to see everyone else's reactions to a complex social situation. Truth is the definitive insider. As we talked about her a little bit ago, The April Ball is an environment where the job she has is put to a workout and she knows how to navigate that world. But she is unable to entirely shelve her feelings and be a true professional as she constantly makes choices that feel like they're specifically meant to needle others like Abigail (laughs) or in some cases to use others to her goals in spite of their uncomfortability. Her speech at the beginning is a window into her personality. Parties are not meant for fun. They are a different workspace. And in this, we see how she is truly Thomas's daughter. She's not good at stopping working. Mm-hmm. The problem is the compromises she feels she has to make, like not allowing Donald and Jeremy to visibly be together, because that is not an acceptable idea in the old world that this is a bastion of. We share Abigail's frustration with truth, sacrificing what is right on the altar of politics. Truth engages with people as they are rather than what we would like them to be. I believe she even said so herself. Yeah, that was part of the that first chapter where we met her and she's arguing with Thomas on the basis of like when we, where we want to rewrite the cartographer's handbook with that in mind, not your ideals. I, I do sympathize with her because in a series of such aspirational fiction as this, mm. I feel like hers is a thankless job. Mm. We've talked about this as such that Thomas, just through his sheer force of will and personality, he can't help but inadvertently set her up to be the strong antagonist the straw man to be defeated and that puts her in a hard position i think that because she is surrounded by people who have similar drives and things to aspire to that it is quite a lonely place for her to be because few will be sharing her point of view of what's necessary or it's not even necessarily that few people will share it it's Mm. that her father doesn't share it and her what her father says tends to be what goes yeah the complicated thing in regards to her point of view is that they both have a similar end goal in terms of this outcome at almost any cost it's just that the things that they think are important 
are slightly different. Thomas is unwilling to sacrifice his values in the goals of protecting humanity, and Truth is more worried about being unable to get people to do things because you're asking them to accept things that they are not willing to accept right now. So how Mm. about trying to get them on board first and implement change later? But we Mm. also know from experience how difficult that is, because if people feel comfortable, then they're not going to want to try and make big changes. The problem is that when you mirror or match the predilections or preferences of those you shake hands with in order to do good business with them in the hope of surviving long enough that you can implement incremental changes and improvements somewhere down the road at an indeterminate moment, Mm. are you really acting all that differently to those you admonish and yet still associate with? Have you ever seen the movie Longshot with uh, Charlize Theron? I have not, but you mentioned Charlize Theron, so I'm definitely <laughs> at least interested. Um, so that was a comedy that came out in 2019. It was a bit of a subversion of the traditional rom-com. And I didn't know that I would like it when I was first going into it. I was mostly intrigued about it because of Charlize Theron and not because of her co-lead Seth Rogen and everything like that. But that theme is a central component of the movie, and I suggest you watch it specifically for how that movie tries to address that idea. Okay, that sounds good. So we've got truth on one side of things. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Abigail is the consummate rebel. Mm -hmm. She is the one that values agency and freedom over anything else. She's barely holding those impulses back here in this chapter. It's here we can fully see how her characterization is a reflection of Malcolm Reynolds, the renegade ship captain from Firefly. She is ill at ease with the setting and how she fits into it, which is to say she doesn't feel like she does at all. She feels uncomfortable in the dress and is sure that she looks horrible in it in comparison to other people even though we clearly see from james's perspective at one point that he thinks she looks amazing as i'm sure she does in the meantime as we see things from her perspective she is acting out more and even at some point referring to steamheart in negative terms while conversing with van tassel and raven never mind barely being diplomatic with van tassel at all As we watch her move through this chapter, we are surprised that she finds rapport with Thomas, who appears to see through to the heart of her nature and sympathizes due to his own discomfort with the pageantry of the old world. He Mm. finds a way to empathize with her outside of the earlier conflicting component of she is a soldier or a child ultimately. And he is the commanding officer slash patriarch. This moment with the two of them is all the more pointed that it's framed with the music of the harpsichord, something that Thomas himself referred to with disdain in the previous novel. We see that they have a moment of connection as he 
chooses to help Abigail with her hobby, introducing her to General Curtis, which is, of course, a moment that makes all of us smile because I smile whenever Curtis is a part of the picture. I'm always picturing, you know, that handlebar mustache and that deep bass voice. And I just he he makes everything better. (laughs) The line that most embodies all of this is when Thomas remarks on the impulse to deliberately put a foot wrong just to see what happens in spite of the constant pressure not to. If Abigail doesn't like the notion of being physically boxed in by Steamheart or even her tight and restrictive dress during the fittings, then she certainly won't feel comfortable being constrained in these social soirees and vacuous niceties exchanged in conversations without an ounce of honest exchange. Mm. The music emphasises the flow and constant passing over of partner to dance partner, painting up the association with a sense of structured beauty while the underlying force of the instruments used in their construction threatens to erupt into a cacophony, but never quite does. It's a social knife edge, and Abigail feels fed up being there for one evening. No wonder she forms a connection, if only briefly, with a man who is equally ill at ease with it, who must endure it every day. Mm. And the reprieve she gets, not just with Raven, but with Curtis, is that she's not like having to put on airs or find some way of putting herself forward and bigging herself up. She is even remarking in the narration that she is feeling a bit apprehensive and nervous in this instance because she can say, like, you know, glib remarks quite easily. And, like, there's a lot of other reactions she's had over the course of the evening. But this is a moment where she actually finds herself being in the presence of someone she really respects and she does want to like sort of put herself across as best as she can Mm. but she is given the chance that he says i've read your accomplishments i already know exactly how commendable you are and she remarks in her narration that she has nothing to prove to this man Mm. and we don't even hear the conversation go on any longer than that because that's all that really matters and that's the point that it doesn't matter what Abigail has to say next because everything she's done has been noted upon and she sort of wishes she could meet everyone that way. So it's a really nice exchange of characters who haven't had the chance to be in the same stratosphere as one another until now. This, of course, assumes that all things are equal. Abigail may wish that others reading about her will make them respect her, But as we're well aware of in the modern day, facts don't always matter to those who will not be convinced. Many people consider their values to be extensions of themselves, and are therefore unwilling to hear anything that might prove those prejudices wrong. There was a moment during the recent Bound podcast where Sharon was talking about the female gaze, and the, the concept of the male gaze or the female gaze mm. is a component in visual storytelling. So it's not really appropriate here. Mm. But one of the elements that she said is significant to that is 
whatever the camera is lingering on, it gives us a way to understand the feelings or to suggest at the feelings, to be able to imagine the feelings of whoever it is that is doing the gazing. Mm. And when you're talking about they don't need to have any further conversation, it's because the words that they would exchange with each other are not what is significant. It is mm. what Abigail is feeling in that moment. And mm. it's her internal voice that is relating that important concept to this moment that she mm. is suddenly feeling complicatedly ill at ease, not because she doesn't fit into a situation, but because she doesn't have enough prior experience to know how to respond to it. It's almost the equivalent of visual storytelling in camera. I mean, this is what you were just saying of like feeling the gaze. It's, it's visual storytelling though. Like, in that instance, it's not necessarily storytelling as much as it is, it is you're feeling like there's a certain predilection that the camera is indulging in. Mm-hmm. And in this instance, it's storytelling where it's like you can feel what is being communicated without it having to indulge in traditional forms of communication, mm-hmm. i.e. two people having a conversation. It's like it's using the conventions of the medium in film. It would just be the cinematography or the editing or whatever else is within the mise-en-scene. And here it's the narration, the words conveying a set of ideas and internal feelings. Mm-hmm. And that is enough to tell us about the in- nature of this interaction. I love it when you can get that because it's so easy to indulge in conversations as the only form of communication when really there's a whole scope of ways that ideas can be conveyed from person to person. Yeah. I had a question of you. Yes. That I was having a difficulty understanding this thing, as I alluded to earlier, where Abigail speaks disparagingly of Steamheart twice over. Mm -hmm. Because it's not clear if it's because she's being rebellious or perhaps because the poor experience she had with the scorpion suit was like further setting off her fear of being trapped and stuff like that. Especially after it's clear that she really likes Harry. So the idea that she would speak ill of Steamheart to other people, I, I didn't understand why it was that she would do that. And I was curious about what you thought was going on there. I reckon that um, she's not necessarily disparaging of like the craft itself. I think she's a bit frosty on the mission because we've seen multiple times throughout her life that she resents when other people are deciding her path forward for Mm. her and confining her and almost literally railroading her. Mm. So she's almost like, that is what this journey in Steamheart is going to be, where like she's on that. I think that because she's quite an important member of the team, and when they're out there, it will be basically the team like pitching in and deciding for themselves. Like They will have, to a certain extent, their own autonomy as they make their mission ahead. But Abigail is probably content enough with Steamheart to 
ultimately agree to the mission, even if she will be at some discomfort confined within it. When she complains to Raven, I think it's a bit of humor with those that you're going to be stuck alongside with in the trenches, you know, like commiserating in your shared digs as you have to go through it together, something like that. Other than that, I think she speaks somewhat disparagingly because she's probably sensing the disjunction between the pristine, dressed-up celebration of this mission and the sweaty, greasy reality of seeing it through. Maybe her rebellion is speaking up because everyone here is dressed up in pomp and circumstance and making a big show about how splendid this venture is, and she's kind of resenting everyone being here for the drinks and nibbles and like bigging this up to be a lot more glamorous than it will actually be on a day-to-day basis and considering that she is if not on the eve of departure right like that it may very well be but this is symbolically like a departure party so she's going to be thinking about the journey ahead and will be feeling a little apprehensive about it so maybe this is her way of coping is to be like I'm feeling nervous about this so I'm gonna be a bit sort of shirty about oh I'm like I'm gonna be stuck in this goddamn tin can Mm -hmm. or something like that you know if she was to be stuck in any tin can Steamheart is the best one for her (laughs) but uh, it's very much she's not escaping from the feeling that she has been railroaded into a tin can Mm. yeah that does make sense to me, honestly, that her words are a reflection of her current state of mind. If if she wouldn't necessarily be this way if she wasn't feeling uncomfortable, if she wasn't feeling frustrated. And we're going to talk more when we get to, uh, in a couple of chapters, when we talk about how she feels about propaganda or how something looks versus how something actually is um but we still have a couple more moments to bring up so i'm gonna leave that for um for that moment and while i don't want to jump the gun too much when i read ahead to the journey itself it brought front and center that no matter how comfortable steamheart is her claustrophobia means that it is a constant stressor on her I feel like maybe I didn't give enough credit to how badly she reacted to Steamheart during that earlier chapter, at least in comparison to the Scorpion suit. But I also think that regardless of how she feels, scared shitless as Raven might say or not, it's also possible that her words were specifically rebellion not against the mission itself, but rather at truth. Remember, she started saying these things after the argument over Donald and Jeremy. Finally, there's James and Harry, and there's this intriguing little note, which is easy to miss if you don't notice it, because we see that Frank gets it in his head that Harry is interested in James, and therefore sets something up with Annie, and she'll get Jeremy closer to where Sarah is dancing with Donald, and meanwhile, Frank trades Harry off to James and dances off with Truth. But because our minds are on the fact that Jeremy and Donald can't dance together, and James was not able to dance with Abigail, when we see him admiring Abigail, it's easy for us to miss that Harry says, it's such a shame that they won't let us dance 
with who we want to. The us implies that Harry includes herself in that number, and it makes us wonder, who does Harry actually want to dance with? Because this suggests that it might not be James like Frank thought. James certainly takes it in the way of him not being able to dance with Abigail, and the reasons for that might extend beyond any restrictions placed upon him by obligations and go into some of the history of tensions they've accumulated over their lifetimes together. That, like, if James yep. and Abigail weren't the prime people who who they dance with is going to be, like, there was a workshop and a meeting about, okay, first James will dance with this person, then that person, then that person. Like, Truth spent at probably hours putting that together oh and also the whole thing where it's like i mean that again we'll talk more about this Mm. in chapter 12 but like there was the the implication of this back in chapter six as well i think the idea of james and abigail dancing together and the two of them possibly actually having chemistry would get in the way of truth's propaganda that these are people that you want are available. Yeah, yes. are available, and that the outs that the the people of America can fall in love with, rather mm. than them clearly it, being attached to each other the way Annie and look, Frank are. Because so mm. yeah, they they need they need nubile young mm. people to be like because they don't know about shipping culture yet. like in washington is like no 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 i ship jeremy with james (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly um but yeah even if there was none of this i think james would want very much to dance with abigail Mm. but i think and i think she does as well but there is a lot that makes that difficult and it's not just the political nature of it you know And Harry, well, that is food for thought. And I will keep things vague enough that now to leave possibilities open in the same way that maybe (laughs) Truffle was just doing. So, but for the curious or the informed, I will encourage you to look back at some of Loretta's reads of Harry's responses to each of the developments of this dance like Mm. each line of dialogue of hers when uh butler comes up and makes a suggestion or things like that Mm. i won't say anything more but just go back and see that and you may be able to read a little bit more everything laden with subtext laden with subtext Mm -hmm. i just i i felt the need to bring up that one moment because it stood out to me now in a way that once more there are things that I miss in the rush Mm. being like being focused on this one thing over here and therefore missing the turn of phrase over here this is what happens when I'm like we're gearing up for a through the wind door and I'm just like Mm -hmm. okay I'm reading and rereading and like constructing the outline i'm sort of be like that thing over there stands out to me yeah (laughs) let me investigate a little bit further that's what ends up happening to bring us to the end of our discussion for these chapters even though these are not the final words of the evening there is a deep abiding resonance to the moment when abigail and thomas are dancing together 
And she's asking, how long are we expected to keep moving like this? And Thomas's solemn response is, as long as we can. Abigail may have meant the question literally, but Thomas's answer feels like a commentary on the current state of affairs. Mm. That there is a, a dual meaning to it that they should keep powering on and trying to save what is left of their nation, what is left of their world, with any strength and will they can muster. And in this, Thomas and Abigail are united. They are both doers, and they cannot stop trying because it is not in their nature. And yet it is a burden that in this moment, Thomas is acknowledging that it is hard to bear. Keep the dance going as long as the music still plays. This is such an, I think, a well-accomplished chapter. I mm -hmm. remember when I was doing... It's an, it's an ogre. It has layers. Yeah. <laughs> but when I was doing my chapter-by-chapter -chapter analyses on my blog... I didn't get all the way through Steamheart. In point of fact, I don't think I got much further than here. I may have gotten maybe close to halfway. I can't remember. But I certainly found this one there was so much to talk about. because, mm, mm. And, and even here, we've there have been things that we've had to sort of skim over to a certain extent. You know, we get van tassel showing up and we see what he's like when he doesn't have fisher around what, fisher around. yeah when he doesn't have fisher around to just kind of dictate what the conversation will be and we see him floundering because he says one thing and then he'll say the complete opposite where it's like oh i have such a sort of fondness for the sort of minutiae of politics and then when abigail says well i don't really enjoy it well me neither it's like and then abigail says you just said the complete opposite so one of those things was a lie and you can just sort of hear the sweat in his words and even lee is there and mm. lee is there in the exact right capacity where i love her outfit that she has it sounds really cool and it also it fits her but it also she's there very briefly to sharply and decisively say okay you're going to leave now and then she disappears for the rest of the chapter because you know she is just kind of invisibly navigating the party and just sort of anytime there's a sign of tr trouble it's just like we see it here and you know that thomas has her there because it's like okay, I want you to just get any people that we don't want here gone. Um, Lee and... is, her chosen weapon is the knife. Mm. And it's clear to a certain extent that Surgical. she views, yeah, she views herself also as a knife. So that yeah. comes across in how she interacts mm. with the world. She appears, she disappears, yeah. function completed. Yeah. This party has, like, an in-text function of, like, setting up, like, team scene. We have to make sure the idea that this group coming together, leaving, feels like a big event, mm. even for the people in there. So we do this. But it's also for this whole crossover and big meeting pot of characters. We're doing this in order to kind of see how they bounce off of one another and something that a lot of people enjoy in Mass Effect is 
the Citadel DLC, mm. where there is a little storyline in that. It's very kind of fan y in the sense that it's just a kind of silly idea, but it's fun to see how the characters react to it. Mm-hmm. And then you get to the end of it, and the bulk of it is just let's have a party and you get to plan the party and have different characters in there. And depending on how things are going, you might have Garrus and Zaid saying like, Shafford, your security in this apartment sucks, but don't worry, we can set it up for you. So as the party is progressing, they're just like in the various parts of it. And Grunt is just groggy and asleep in the shower because he's like a little baby and he can't hold his alcohol and just things like this where this party is there and it's got a lot more of a somber note and a somber quality it's not a celebration for job well done because there's a lot of apprehension at the job ahead of them and that's why i think when the music comes to the end at the end of the chapter and there's all the clapping. It feels like the party is completed, but there's still that unease that remains. Mm. It's one of my favorite chapters in the book. Mm. There's a lot of isolated moments and moments that kind of feed into the broader structure. But this one does exactly what Steamheart as a book is aiming to set out to do move the story forward but just indulge in what we have been doing for all of these books which is building up these characters and saying this is who they are this is what drives them and now we get to see like who they piss off when they're at a party. Truth is there, and she is pissing off this person, and that person is pissing off her, but there's also characters who get along really well, and then you have the people who aren't really even engaging with the party like Raven. It just flows together. Mm. Honestly, part of the reason why putting together the outline for these set of chapters was so difficult is that there were so many little notes that I had as I was listening to chapter 10 and be like, okay, there's this thing and there's that thing and that. And if I had included every single thought that I had, Mm -hmm. the outline would have ballooned up and Mm. included lots of little things. But I literally had to go in like Lee and surgically cut out this portion here, that portion here, in order to make our conversation about it as concise as possible and concentrate on the larger themes and character moments. This book, more than any of the others, we are going to miss stuff because Or or just decide not to talk about things because we, we... we don't want to spend two years talking about this. Let's try to get it done in one. Yep. <laughs> Originally, this was going to be the end of this week's episode, plus some outtakes. But that seemed even meaner than usual, since I know these one-hour episodes only barely feed Alex for a single week. So I decided to schedule a mini-recording to discuss the musical choices of the April Ball. I was just going to slot it in earlier when we made reference to the harpsichord, but then as I cut out all the before and after conversation, we still had close to an additional 45 minutes of content, a bunch of which referred to things we already talked about. So instead, I put it here at the end of our recording. 
before we start talking about the musical stuff, I basically went back over and over trying to figure out where one piece of music began and another ended because there are so many different pieces during the course of the April ball. I didn't necessarily recognize most of them. So trying to figure out exact separations and how those separations might be significant was difficult in places, especially since when you actually look at the list of all of the pieces of music that were used for this chapter, it says things like Bach Concerto. Okay, which one? Bach's done a lot of concertos. And that meant that I was looking on YouTube for a very long time, like, is it this one? Is it this one? When really I should have just cast my eyes a little bit lower in the credits where it says, all here orchestrated by Kevin McLeod over Competech.com. So I was like, oh, so really I just need huh. to look for which pieces Kevin McLeod might have done on YouTube. And that will hone it down a little bit further. Though everybody knows Buck's a hack anyway. Let's get like Kevin back on because like that's that's what interests me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but during the course of all of this, uh, trying to figure things out, trying to figure out which piece was what, there's a moment when James is laughing at basically Abigail's antics with mm-hmm. the announcer. And mm-hmm. it's great because when it plays out as a part of the audio drama, Abigail ends up laughing as well. You can actually hear the very distinct telltale of Sharon's giggle as being a part of the background of that part of the episode, even though there's a little bit of a, um, a disconnect because I know what Sharon's voice sounds like And I know what Sharon's giggle sounds like, but when Sharon is specifically voicing Abigail Gray, I have to imagine that Abigail's laughter would sound a little bit different. Like it has a bit of a tenor to it. I don't know if an accent can show up in laughter, but that's what it feels like. It's a very fine point you raise because like laughter is acting you're trying to sculpt a performance like it, it's one of the there's one of the great things about it is about striking this balance between tailoring it and being specific and controlling what you're delivering with your performance but also allowing for a certain amount of the organicness because if you are too mechanical then you come across too stiff laughter is an impulsive reaction it's like mm. your your body is actually doing it be, not because it decides to laugh like this is me deliberately laughing <laughs> and it's like that that doesn't really sort of sound it sounded creepy but like if greg say something that will make me laugh i can't do it on command <laughs> well there you go that that was me like laughing just that and that's my point, is that it's not something that you control or like you deliberately do, really, when it's genuine, which means trying to do a performance where you're inhabiting the headspace and trying to capture a register of voice and also simulate laughter like accurately, mm-hmm. that's hard. And I don't know really what the process of that is like. I think laughter is where the actual like actor behind it probably shows enough of themselves like that's Mm. where they'll come through because 
I don't know if it's possible to like do laughter that registers as genuine without it feeling like you're sort of dropping whatever pretense you were showing across to like and that's kind of the point is that in this formal ball where everyone's dressing up and putting across some sort of insincere front the laughter is appreciated because that's where characters especially characters like james who we don't hear him like laugh a lot it's fun to hear we don't we don't tend to hear james laugh at all which is why it was an amazing moment for the character Mm. Uh, and why I paid attention to it when that sequence played out and everything like that. I honestly, to a certain extent, wasn't entirely sure if... Not that James didn't know how to laugh, but, like, if he had a sense of humor. It's a tricky one, because, like, it's one of those things that, like... uh, You know, I think this is going to be more relevant to our conversation in the next set of chapters when Mm. we bring up Abigail and her difficulties with crying because Mm. that is another human impulse response that is based on a sort of emotional thing Mm -hmm. and that's something like between the two of them if you were just introducing these characters to someone and you mentioned that one of them has difficulty crying you would actually probably assume it would be James Mm. and the fact that it's Abigail is a surprise to us so it's a sort of like similar one that maybe James does have a certain amount of that, but it's clearly not something that he... You know who would sound weird, like we would genuinely find it difficult, is hearing Thomas laugh. Can you imagine? I'm suddenly trying to remember if there was any point that Thomas left over the course of Arlington. I'm struggling to remember. Even with his moments with Sarah, like they're Mm. sweet. He has a sense of humour, but he doesn't laugh. He has a dry wit, but... He doesn't mm. laugh at his own, at, at uh, yeah, no, you're right. Mm. A lot of the characters we do hear laugh are the characters who we actually don't really enjoy or appreciate the company of, because it's like Dutch Van Tassel uh, just hearing, like, well, hello, it's me, mm. Dutch Van Tassel. That, I have no idea what this voice is, but... Um, like... It's all right. Well, that was just a side tangent that I was getting on to. Looking at the list of pieces that were picked out specifically for the ball, do you have a lot of familiarity with classical music and stuff like that? Because I didn't know most of these. I was Mm. aware of, you know, Tchaikovsky's work specifically as a result of Fantasia. Tchaikovsky is actually only a small part of the original animated feature, but in particular, the animation of the Mushroom Dance and the Waltz of the Flowers from the Nutcracker Suite stuck in my brain as a child. Mm. Uh, I know Mozart mostly from the movie Amadeus. Wouldn't be able to recognize uh, a Mozart piece if you held a gun to my head. Mm. And I'll get into my background with Pachelbel's canon in a little bit, but I'm curious about your experience with any of these works. Unfortunately, this is the part where I really kind of have to just offer a shrug and say I don't have, like, a lot of them you'll recognize because Mm. they have been used in perpetuity. 
when it, it's not just Pachelbel's canon, like these things are all part of like the canon of recognized music that our culture has just sort of ingrained into itself. Even if it's not one of the ones that really like gets used over and over and over, I think when you hear classical music, there's something about it that you can always tell when it is actually an authentic thing from this sort of great history of classical music or a modern piece that's evoking it. And I can't really sort of put a finger on what it is about them. Music analysis and the actual sort of critiquing it, but also just the construction of it, is one of those ones that I find very difficult to actually be able to see. Like I can say how it makes me feel. And mm. in this context, a lot of the classical music sort of puts across this feeling of very finely curated set of things being lined up in the right order uh, which if we would state that interpretation basically makes this like the character who embodies it the most would probably be truth because she is trying to mm. or she is literally trying to orchestrate the evening and how it will go beyond that i think that the thing with classical music is that in addition to it having this impression of being very formal and very sort of everything in its proper place, mm. there, there is also a contrasting feeling of it being forceful and that there can be a cacophony of, at times, just chaos, like chaotic, like just noise all coming together to create a stirring of emotions that overlap with one another, even if it's not the climax to something very forceful even if it's something that is more constructed for the sake of ballroom dancing mm. a lot of that nevertheless does have this feeling of sensory overload there's always more layers going on to any individual piece of music in whatever context than you like would initially think even if you were listening to something that's just one instrument there's always mm. more to it than what appears to be on the surface but with orchestra it's almost like there's too much like it all comes together and yet you can hear these 100 component parts sitting in isolation all of this is not really particularly formed or specific for which i apologize i mean heck it's not like we waited for a week after the rest of the main show and i actually had plenty of time to prepare for this <laughs> Well, again, this is not our milieu. I read about other people explaining to me, like, the components of the uh, Bach cello suites or Mozart's Divertimento or the significance of Pachelbel's canon. And it's using words that I don't really... Like, I, I, I recognize the words, but I don't necessarily understand what they're actually trying to say because they don't have the correct musical vocabulary. From what I was able to glean about some of these things, I like the fact that um, one of the pieces chosen, Symphonia, is also known as Bach's three-part invention, hmm. which gives a feel a bit like, oh yes, inventions. Like Harry is always inventing ah. things. <laughs> so, but there's even a different cast to that when I was looking up what Yo-Yo Ma had to say about box cello suites. Yo-Yo mm. Ma is, of course, one of the 
most renowned cello players out there. And he said specifically about the suites, over the years, I came to believe that in creating these works, Bach played the part of a musician scientist, expressing mm. precise observations about nature and human nature. That sentence just has an incredible, profound weight to it that I can appreciate if I can't necessarily completely understand what Yo-Yo Ma is tapping into. I mm. would say that in this particular case, I am actually very familiar with the prelude to box cello suite number one, because mm. it played a very important component in put a penny in the jar, the West wing. Uh... <laughs> so Yo-Yo Ma himself was specifically performing for the episode, but the episode mm. in question was centered around one of the main characters of the show overcoming their post-traumatic stress disorder after a uh, a violent shooting that happened earlier, basically at the beginning of season two. And it means that at, at a very specific point, it's as the as the cello music is rising, it's meant to be beautiful, but also symbolic of the panic attack that the character is having as the cello music just gets more and more intense mm. and is overlaid in places with the past memory of the guns going off and windows breaking and people screaming and everything like that. He's reliving the experience overlaid with the intensity of the cello music. very confused about why I couldn't pick this out, given that I'd listened to this episode so many times and had even heard the cello suite prelude in other places as well. And it's because when Kevin McLeod recorded this, he didn't do it with the cello. He did it with the dulcimer. The notes are the same, but the sound being produced is very different. Mm. That's a very good uh, description of it, that you can hit the same notes while the sound... You could apply that to many areas, but to go back to what you were talking about with the analysis, another reason why it fits, why the comparison to West Wing fits, is that this is the Arlington component of Steamheart, in that this is the political sphere yes. of new century this is the characters being put on display and having to navigate the social graces even things that are have not been part of the conversation or the like political developments of arlington but are nevertheless 
very much like the politics of Washington and New Century, things like Jeremy and Donald not being mm. able to publicly display their relationship and Truth's response to that. It's this thing of like, you may think that all of your politics are just the deals you make and the papers you sign and all of the mm. laws you put into effect. But just as much as like what people have been commenting on with like Disney and like, everything with don't say gay and stuff mm. like that is just inaction or like not making a statement on it is just as much of saying a statement on it as like if you were to put yourself on the line and say we are going to actually acknowledge this thing because you are reinforcing it and it has an effect and truth de-emphasizing that it's funny because this is a part of her character that does resurface later mm. and it's not something that never necessarily like comes to a huge amount and i don't think like Let's be clear, I do not believe that Truth is outright homophobic or anything like mm -hmm. that. But between this and some moments in a later story, there are things with her character that really do feel as if she finds it like difficult to necessarily acknowledge this different experience or when other people are discussing it whether it's something that she personally finds a bit uncomfortable to talk about or it's just more like because she's in the public relations thing and it's sort of like she's aware of how people at home feel about it and think about it it is this part of her personality which does further put her at odds with some of the main characters who we like and we love having this spectrum of characters on board and voice support for it but yeah I, I don't know where I'm necessarily going with this it's just we're seeing the political dimensions of Washington mm. and the classical music works for that I have another point but I'm going to shut up for a moment to give you a chance to speak because I like this next one is definitely taking us on a different conversation path well everything that you've been saying so far about the mindset that the classical music puts us in, as you use the word orchestrated, po politics itself is a bit of a dance, you know, yeah. like sort of a little bit like, like the dance well, that we talked about, where, you know, Abigail. Thomas is and, yeah. yeah, exactly. But the thing is, is that, you know, this was part of a side conversation that I was having with Alex at one point, the frustration about the pomp and circumstance and the moves that you have to make in order for everything to be just so, just mm. so you can get an inch of whatever it is you're trying to accomplish done because mm. politicians, people of power, won't be motivated to do things unless they're approached in just exactly the right way. Mm. That's the feel that the classical music brings to it. Even though the music itself is meant to be you know, one of them is literally titled Divertimento. It's light entertainment. It's fluffy. It's meant to mm. make everybody relax and be like, everything mm. is controlled here, just like the music with mm. all of the different instruments playing in harmony and someone saying, now you play, now you play, now you do that. It's meant to make the bigwigs feel comfortable in this circumstance, even if yeah. outside DC is chaos. Side note, saying bigwigs from this point forward 
will always feel different after the elaborate tale of the hairy aliens that Alex came up with from our final Behind the White Scarves episode. Yeah, because it needs to be sort of putting on this front of civilization. This mm-hmm. music is reminiscent of civilization. And in some ways, like this is the thing, is that I don't necessarily want to suggest that like because of how this music is framed here and historically how it has been framed in political circles or just like high society that it's a condemnation of the music itself because it is profound music it can elicit a strong emotional response to it but that's the thing is that a lot of the music that was made during those times were specifically made by musicians for wealthy patrons that's this true, isn't music yeah. that was this generally was not music made for the masses. It was made for those willing to pay for it. Yes. So that that is part of its history. So it's strange because you uh, the thing that occurs to me is that with Thomas, we heard in Arlington him talk about how like dance lessons, mm-hmm. he was not really sure of the use of it. And yet here we are. We see also, he's actually also the harpsichord, because yes. the harpsichord is a significant component of mm. some of the pieces that are playing during the April. Ball. Yeah, and yet we see that he is actually quite accomplished as a dancer, mm. despite the fact that he doesn't really see much use to it. Which I think just adds to the feeling that he knows what steps he needs to put in order to keep going on with this dance and what it represents. But he kind of wants to put a foot out of place because like, he ultimately doesn't put a lot of stock into the dance itself, whereas Mm. characters like Sarah and Annie actually really do put a lot of stock in it. I think there's a bit more of a sense of, like, they can appreciate the value of the activity they're there for, whereas other people are seeing it as, like, a theater for business like mm. uh, which is and their business is politics yeah and it's it's like how in various like things i've seen of things like episode three of star wars and in league of legends arcane series and multiple other uh, pieces of media where you'll see upper class and politicians having these conversations while an opera is going on it's like mm-hmm. there's all this pretense of culture and mm-hmm. the the arts and yet it's really just a meeting ground for all of this other stuff to be happening mm-hmm. so for as much as classical music can feel like this is like what we call classical it it puts on airs of being mm. the foundation of music when that's not really like true music existed long before if we want to say something is classical it's sort of like well think about like the folk songs from way way beyond that Mm -hmm. but for whatever reason this particular period and canon of work is kind of what people think of as this is like where music stems from like in our modern understanding of it yeah it has this fallacy to it where it's like for as much as we frame it like that it's also the backdrop to all of this insincere bullshit I think in regards to the reason why these pieces tend to be so influential and are considered to be more important than other pieces is because more likely until recently, 
this is the stuff that proliferated. This is the stuff that was taught. Mm. It probably took a little bit longer for someone to actually be willing to study music of the masses. And this is why the emergence of jazz and its sort of foundations Mm. before it became commodified by white people wanting Mm -hmm. to make money out of the cultural expressions of not them yeah (laughs) jazz is this refutation of everything we're talking about this sense of what is taught classical music is embodiment of like institutionalized music Mm. that's Mm. that's what it is and the mascot it is the embodiment it is the soul of the institution and so here it's there to kind of encourage and soothe these people to assure them that don't the worry. institution will always survive yes the institution perseveres it's strange because they are uh, the, especially the music that plays at the end of the episode when raven is talking about mm. the last days of humanity and we hear the music sort of have a soft crescendo to its natural conclusion it's sweet it's beautiful and it's a poignant moment because the music almost is reflecting what he's talking about the idea of just we're here to listen to and recognize it for the duration of its existing and it playing and we're just here to wait it out until it reaches the end Mm -hmm. and that is a soulful moment but what music can tap into emotionally and what music can be employed to is often a big dichotomy and just dilemma of Mm. i mean not just music but art in general so it makes me happy we have a series like this that can just explore these things honestly and earnestly i want to talk further about that because Mm -hmm. when you're referring to the end there is a very specific piece that is playing before Mm -hmm. we get into it i just want to add that Kevin McLeod's version of Cello Suite 1 playing on the dulcimer is specifically playing when Harry and James are dancing. Mm. And that means that the timing is actually very important because you can hear the tempo of, not the cello in this case, but the dulcimer increasing when the narration is saying that James is looking at Abigail. And so it Mm. has a little bit of the feeling of like uh, a heart going to racing or something like that. So I appreciate Mm. that particular moment. And I could see why that might have been picked for that specific part of the story. Step with me and watch what everyone else is doing out of the corner of your eye. Well, that sounds okay. I can copy them. Provided they give me the blueprints. And so we did just that. Our eyes on the other dancers, keeping careful time and matching our feet. Eventually we found the rhythm and got to a section where she moved in close, holding my arms around her. Are you quite alright? Sure. You're a good dancer. I'm having fun. Well, good. Are you apprehensive about tomorrow? I'm looking forward to it. Doing this was so much scarier. Likewise. Thank you for helping me, James. You're more than welcome. As I said this, Pines and Abigail moved past, keeping in close proximity to Donald and Annie. It's such a shame they won't let us dance with who we really want to. 
My eye lingered on Abby in her elegant green dress, looking more beautiful than I had ever seen her, red hair cascading down bare shoulders like wildfire. It is a shame. It's the bittersweetness of the unexpressed love. Mm-hmm. And considering uh, the multiple things, not just James's sentiment, but what Harry says of, it's such a shame they won't let us dance with who we want to. And we talk about what that could mean, but also uh, Jeremy and Donald, it certainly embodies it on multiple levels. It's a great like employment of the music and considering the venues and the destinations we have on the horizon it is one of many instances in which steamheart will indulge in a self-contained pastiche or a sort of genre like exploration and we're about to go into a historical documentary and like almost like a self-contained biopic in Mm -hmm. The next chapter or so and here we get to do the mid-season west wing here's like the characters at a ball and mm-hmm. or you know what it is it's bridgerton or like a uh, very jane Eyre, like just sort of the ah oh, the uh, the westfield ball you know, don't uh, like did you know that she came unaccompanied this evening my word <laughs> somehow no matter how far we go in new century it always comes back to gothic literature, doesn't it? Anyway, moving on, we've still got one major piece to discuss. Thomas takes Abigail over to meet uh, Nathaniel Curtis, mm-hmm. and this piece plays until the very end, so it's the, the quality that you were speaking of as Raven talks about the uh, the end of humanity. That is Pachelbel's canon right there. Right. I became familiar with this not necessarily the same way a lot of other people did. I first heard this piece because of my father. My father really loved this particular piece of music. He had it on CD, so he would sometimes put it into the CD player in his fancy Subaru when we were driving places. And that's Mm -hmm. how I became familiar with it. But for most people... The canon became well-known as a result of it being a foundational piece of the movie Ordinary People, which came out in 1980, directed by Robert Redford. It was based on a book, so we we watched the movie, I think, as part of the culmination of finishing the book in English class, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's got some amazing actors in there. Judd Hirsch as the therapist... Donald Sutherland is the father, and Mary Tyler Moore is the mother. And the movie begins with the theme, and it keeps on playing throughout it. But it's the story is basically about the slow dissolution of a, of a family in crisis after the loss of a family member and the inability for them to heal as a result. Sure. So... That piece will always have a quality to it in terms of the representation of people trying to keep everything orderly, I guess, Mm. even as it's masking all of the chaos that's going on underneath. As a piece of synchronicity, this makes me think of Donald Sutherland in another movie that centers around the loss of a child, Don't Look Now. Very different films, 
but drawing on some of the same ideas of the chaos of grappling with grief. I tried looking up to find out why Robert Redford chose this piece in particular. Uh, and the only thing I could come up with is just what I said, basically, that it, it's meant to be a representation of this suburban life that is supposed to be very perfect and beautiful and sonorous, even as we see underneath and realize that there's a lot of problems that are going unaddressed as people try to keep pretending like everything is normal after a major tragedy has happened. I'm glad that we have had this session, this micro session that will fit within uh, the bigger episode on this music, because I think that just hearing you, like your expanded thoughts on some of this has made me appreciate the individual components and the thought behind a lot of this and how we employ classical music, because when you hear this classical music in a lot of fiction and media, you tend to just kind of default it where you just mm -hmm. say, oh, this is fitting this sort of slot of music and you mm -hmm. kind of conflate a lot of the pieces without necessarily thinking about the individual pieces, history and what context it brings with it. There is a lot being said here with this music in order to actually punctuate some of the things that are being talked about by these characters. And the episode is not just about politics, because I mm. think we've established right now that Alex, he is exhausted by the superficial qualities of mm -hmm. politics. So if he did an episode that was just about what's to be done about this or what connections can we make with such and such and what trade routes can we employ if we do like that what do people the... say in rooms, mm. smoking cigarettes and drinking but brandy precisely. in order to make this thing happen? Yes, precisely. No. Uh, it is not just about that. It is there, but it is much more fixated with how the characters feel mm. as they have to dance through this theatre of politics here. Mm. Because the occasion, lest we forget, is not just about making connections. It is nominally about marking the eve of this great venture and so some of our characters have an opportunity to actually think about what's mm -hmm. ahead and the music has this somewhat portentous quality to it because mm -hmm. it's a place of fragile safety for now while mm -hmm. we get to actually before we get to go somewhere where the music and all of the things we put on when we want to make it seem like the institution endures that out there the institution really won't have much reach and it won't have anything to it like this is going to be like the last taste these characters get for a while of the pretense that Washington has everything under control. Mm, mm. And in the meantime, with this particular piece, because it begins with Abigail meeting General Curtis, the calmness of the opening of that piece is a little bit associated with the calming experience that Abigail had to a certain extent, being able to have a normal conversation with a man that she respected, but she also narrates about the conflict inside her, the fact that she doesn't necessarily know how to 
be a good speaking companion to this man who she considers eminent because of his deeds and everything like that. And also the relief that she doesn't necessarily need to be flowery with her language, that he just sees her and understands her. Mm. That's the that's the turmoil going on there, the turmoil that she carries with her as she goes out and talks with mm. Raven. And Raven sort of pokes at it and punctures it and says, yeah. you know, the whole thing with uh, she was shit scared, but hit it well. That mm. just feels like it fits into the theme that I'm associating between Pachelbel's canon in this moment. So the fact that it ends on um, that this that this well-controlled, beautiful, melodious piece ends on Raven's pronouncement about the final days of humanity. As you were saying a moment ago, it just there, there's a fascinating duality to that. Yeah. What was it? I'm trying to remember. Oh, yes, it was the line specifically from Age of Ultron, of all things, where Vision is talking to Ultron and saying something isn't beautiful because it lasts. Yes. Uh, man, Paul Bettany really gets some <laughs> of the best lines of uh, MCU, doesn't he? Yeah. Um, but I think it's not just the music. It's the fact that once you hear the end of the music, you hear the applause as well, which it's the thing that marks the end of the performance. Mm. And it's almost as if what we're seeing here through Raven's pronouncement, we're here to play this out until the end of the performance. And at that point, we just, it's a round of applause or something like that. And the curtain drops. I know that's more theater than uh, concerts, but that's definitely the feeling I got that we're getting close to the curtain call. Mm. Also, that just the the mental image would be like, okay, we tried humanity, humanity didn't work out. Good game, good game, everybody. <laughs> All right, <laughs> just see you next week. We'll try it again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm going to be more intrigued about re-listening to what Alex had to say about the piece that he commissioned specifically for Steamheart. We're not going to get into it now because even though as the individual episodes put out onto the podcast, it was specifically with chapter nine when he started using uh, Where the West Was Won as the opening music rather than the piece that he normally used at the beginning of every episode. But mm -hmm. for the people that are listening to just the audio drama rather than the people that heard it one chapter a week on the podcast feed the place where that particular place is is played as the narration of the chapter happens is going to be in chapter 12 so we will save our discussion and alex's own analysis of why he commissioned that specific piece for that later skype session oh it's so good yeah it is a really good mm. piece and honestly when Alex shares his own thoughts about it, he's better at deconstructing these things than I am. This is why I am trepidatious always about talking about music, is that I, I don't necessarily I, know that I can think yeah. deep thoughts about music as well. You know what? For our trial run before a... This was really the kind of testing mm. ground for 
Sound of New Century, which we will do at one point, mm. maybe as a break between Steamheart and Princess Thieves between seasons. We'll see, but I I think we did all right today. I think yeah. so. And that brings us nearly to the end of our discussion on chapters 8 through 10. We still have some outtakes to listen to, but I want to add that in the original outline, I had a talking point regarding Van Tassel. Since we were already going back and recording some more content to fill out this episode, I considered reviving that part of the outline, which we cut for time during our original Skype session. But since we will never see Van Tassel again in this book, I found it far too apropos to keep him excised from our conversation, much like Agent Lee excised him from the party. He is literally the moth that Raven spoke of, and not worth the oxygen in our lungs to discuss. We'll see you next week to begin our coverage of chapters 11 through 13 on another trip through the wind door. So... I had a weird moment mm-hmm. where the screen had entirely come into focus here and your t-shirt is just a slight shade off from your skin color. <laughs> so I thought that you were not wearing a shirt and had like a tattoo of the red Pac-Man ghost <laughs> on your chest. And I was like, what? Toby, what have you been up to? <laughs> don't don't let him fool you, listeners. I always record without a shirt on. <laughs> so I shan't uh, keep us uh, distracted too long because uh, you made the excellent point that we're still in daylight savings time. So I was like, hey, we'll start like at round six and that will give us an extra hour. And you're saying we're still like daylight savings. I'm like, God damn you, Cypher. Um, I, I, I don't know why I said that. I just I started with God damn you, and then just I've been listening to Bounds. So that's yes, exactly. That, that, in that my came head. Up. I, I was just thinking of uh, Downton Abbey, and Maggie Smith's in that, I think. Yes, uh, yes Maggie Smith is brilliant. Yeah, and I, I was going to say, like, hmm, who would Maggie Smith play in uh, New Century? And I have it. It's Aunt Cleo and Let Them Go. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can see that. I think it would be a slightly younger Maggie Smith, not not as old as she sure. is playing the Countess Dowager in Downton Abbey. But like That's you know, true. yeah. This is a snippet of a larger conversation that Toby and I were having about Akira. Okay, I know that there's a lot of like impressive animation at like all these like from all these different sources in the world in like decades past. But when I was watching this, I was like, this is feeling like sensory overload now. What the fuck did it do to like people in the 80s watching this for the first time? Like, mm. you know, it it really did transport me to the moment and go, I understand why people looked at this and just kind of felt like it was a landmark moment at the time. That, that's one of the problems with any piece of media that is sort of foundational and changes the landscape, is yeah. that when you're going back and watching it, you've seen all the derivative stuff that came out of that. Yeah. So it may be difficult to see the original version of it with the same awe or anything like that. I, 
But if you can put yourself in that mindset, as, mm. in, as in this being atypical for the time. I will say this, that like this is one of those rare things that it just, on an artistic level, accomplishes what it does so well that you mm. do transport yourself to it. But to be completely honest, this is kind of a good year to watch this and feel shook by it because... Mm. <laughs> A lot of people were making reference to the fact that the film is set in 2019. Everyone's talking about these Olympics that are meant to be happening in Tokyo the very next year and how everything is kind of clear that that's not going to happen. And so that feels a bit like, wow, we really are in that dystopian future that Akira was predicting like 30 mm. years ago. But then you get like, Everything about it from like almost the first half minute is about destruction. And I've never seen a film that really quite accomplishes that on such a sort of visceral, like feeling the foundations shaking beneath you. And not in a Michael Bay, oh, look at all this carnage and destruction, for RA, for It's much more about just the concept of having the world you know around you ripped away from you. And this year, and with recent global developments, it just kind of, I could feel it. I could mm. feel it and it definitely like I finished it at like half past midnight and I was just kind of like I couldn't go to bed for another like two hours I was just sort of knife edge on it so yeah I'm probably mm. bigging it up too much but like I would f hardly be the first nerd to big up Akira so there you go that's a fair point and now I'm going to bring back a bit from past outtakes Toby leaves a secret message for Greg while he's away from the microphone. You may have heard me talking about Akira just now, and me gushing it in half-baked thoughts, but here's me now going to give a little something that will be a through-the-window version of Akira. Let's watch. Greg! Toby! Greg! Toby! This is awful. <laughs> I am a bit loopy. Can you tell I've been in the flat by myself for 24 hours? I can. I'm not even sure this podcast is real. I think I'm just talking to myself in the room and the microphone's not even on. You can't hear me. I know you can't. You look very cute today, Greg. You won't hear this, so once you put your headphones on, I'm going to shut up. But yes, you... Hello. Hi, I know that you were saying a lot of something while I was away <laughs> from the headphones, so... Uh, I well, know I what have... you were doing, I just don't know exactly what yet. Uh, you'll never catch me, it's not mm -hmm. like it, uh, there's any evidence of me. Oh no! <laughs> So did you like, uh, I, it took, you know how long it actually took me to find the proper uh, Mega Man victory theme 
that you were referring to. <laughs> I did. I did like that very much. And mm. I appreciate your efforts. They are acknowledged, noted, and d very much appreciated. The thing is, is that I've never played Mega Man, so I'd never actually... <gasps> yeah, exactly. The only reason I knew what you were doing is specifically because of the unskippable Yakuza joke. You defeated the phone. Da -da 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 You've got phone powers. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'd love that. It's like, hmm, Mega Man reference. I don't quite understand that. Toby makes an unskippable reference. That one I know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was an idea that there was an idea. <laughs> Put a penny in the jar. Let me rephrase this moment slightly. Once more, it's time for Deep Thoughts with Toby while Greg is in the bathroom. So, listeners, if you were at a party with the various characters of New Century, who would you want to be uh, chin-wagging with? I think I would want to be having a drink with Robin from Princess Thieves. I certainly wouldn't object to having a couple of drinks with Colo Nash and seeing where the night takes us from there. Abigail would be fun. I would probably get cornered and be desperately trying to escape a conversation with Mayor Buck. Hrow would be the person that like is not really into mingling at all, but is there to chaperone Miguel and I would sort of remove myself from the party just to hang out and uh, sort of talk with them. They would probably, I think Frau would be hanging out outside and just kind of keeping a watch, but I would bring Frau whatever sort of drink or food she would um, most appreciate and just have an honest chat. And Greg's here, so everybody be cool. <laughs>